have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 13. John 13. We are continuing our journey to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. John 13. And Sharon is going to read our passage for us this morning. Thank you, Sharon. This is John chapter 13, verses 18 through 35. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. It has to be one of the biggest scandals in music history. Almost exactly 30 years ago, it was revealed that Rob and Fab of the singing duo Millie Vanilli did not sing a single note on their debut album. Some of you, like me, are old enough to remember Millie Vanilli. Their album, their debut album, sold millions of copies. It had three number one hits on that album, and Rob and Fab did not sing a single note. For all of their live performances, Rob and Fab lip-synced their way right through it. Well, it all began to unravel 
when their backing tape malfunctioned during a live performance on MTV. The soundtrack to their hit song repeated over and over, girl, you know it's girl, you know it's girl, you know it's girl, you know it. And Rob panicked and ran off stage, as I would have done as well. This passage before you shows that it's possible to be a kind of Millie Vanilli Christian. What Millie Vanilli did with their singing, it's possible to do with Christianity. To, to lip sync your way through it. Mouthing the lyrics with no reality in your heart. It's possible to not be a real, genuine follower of Christ, though, though you give the impression to others that you are. But this passage also points out how to show others that we are real. How to demonstrate that we are genuine. It shows us how to put on display authentic Christianity to a watching world. So think of this passage like two different mirrors. One mirror reflects a Milli Vanilli kind of follower of Christ. The other mirror reflects a genuine follower of Christ, one that gets seen, one that gets recognized by others. And the question is, which of those mirrors will most closely reflect your face and my face by the time we leave here? With that question in mind, let's survey this scene in two parts. I'll call the first part the betrayal of a false disciple. The betrayal of a false disciple. Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples. He has just performed the most menial task of his day, one usually performed by a slave washing his disciples' feet. Now he announces the unthinkable in verse 21. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And he testified, he solemnly testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Well, the disciples are stunned. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So Peter gets the attention of the disciple described as one whom Jesus loved. Now, all indications are that is John, the human author of this book. So Peter gets John's attention Who's he talking about? Now you have to realize this Last Supper, this Last Supper was nothing like Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the same name. Jesus and his disciples are around a U-shaped table reclining on their left side. They're all leaning on their left elbows, keeping their right hand free to eat the food. John is on Jesus' immediate right. So John is able to lean his head back against Jesus' chest and whisper to him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus leaning down, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Verse 27. Then, after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, thoroughly possessed him, you might say. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. And John, John adds ominously at the end of verse 30, and it was night. That's more than it was dark outside. This is a moment of deep, horrific, spiritual darkness as, as God the Son in the flesh is about to be betrayed. And maybe, maybe the most frightening part is Judas has been with Jesus for three years. He has seen the miracles of Jesus up close and personal. The lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, dead being raised to life. Judas probably performed miracles as well with Jesus' power along the way. He has heard Jesus' amazing teaching, had a front row seat for the Sermon on the Mount. He has experienced Jesus' love over and over for three years. So we should ask, how can this happen? Well, certainly, Judas is a unique case induced by Satan uniquely to betray the Son of God. Judas is unique, but not entirely unique. He may have been the first Milli Vanilli Christian but not the last. This is what the human heart does apart from the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the truth of Christ is folly. It's foolishness to those without the Spirit. We're born that way. We're born colorblind. Colorblind to the beauty and majesty of Christ. And so we harden our hearts very naturally against Him. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. I just wonder, any of the kids, have you read The Magician's Nephew or had it read to you? It's a great book. So kids, if you haven't read it, pick it up or ask mom and dad to get you a copy or borrow my copy. I'm happy to lend it to you. In The Magician's Nephew, Diggory and his uncle Andrew get into Narnia. And they encounter Aslan, the lion who represents our Lord. And at one point, Aslan is singing the most beautiful singing Diggory ever heard. In fact, this singing brings all the beauty in Narnia into existence. But Uncle Andrew doesn't like the sound. He tells himself, it's only a lion, like they have in the zoo. He tries his hardest to believe it wasn't singing at all. It was just the roaring of a lion. Lewis writes, quote, The longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring until he succeeded. When at last the lion spoke, and said, Narnia, awake! Uncle Andrew only heard a snarl. That's Judas. 
I imagine. Slowly tuning out the beauty and love of Christ until he just heard a snarl. Judas became for him a gifted rabbi who'd lost his way, a miracle worker with a misguided Messiah complex because a war was raging in Judas's heart and Satan wins that war because Judas surrenders to him. Like Uncle Andrew, Judas tuned out the beauty of Jesus until he succeeded. That's the frightening part, I think. A unique case, but not entirely unique. It's possible kids, teenagers, youth, guests, any of us. It's possible to grow up in a Christian home or be here today and do the same thing, to, to tune out the song of Christ's beauty more and more and more, to harden your heart against his love until you succeed. And then you're just at best lip-syncing the lyrics of Christianity with no reality in your heart. But please hear this. Love is reaching out to you right now. In this scene, Jesus so easily hands Judas a piece of bread because it would appear that Judas is on his immediate left. John is on his immediate right. He takes the bread, hands it to Judas. It appears Judas is on his immediate left, the place of honor at the feast. That's where Jesus sat Judas, right next to him in the place of honor. And as the host of this supper, for Jesus to take from his own plate and give to Judas, Judas is, uh, Jesus is, in effect, extending friendship and care and love to Judas. Jesus knows full well what Judas is about to do, but he's still reaching out in love. It's as if Jesus is saying to the very end, Judas, my love is still here for you. It's the heart of God reaching out to you. If you can identify with this mirror. Romans 2 verse 4 asks, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't presume on his kindness. It's an opportunity for you to turn from sin. Don't presume on his patience right now. It's an opportunity for you to turn to Christ and be rescued from sin. Otherwise, the next verse in Romans says, you are storing up wrath against yourself. So I appeal to you, ask the Spirit of God to open your eyes and transform your heart. You don't want to see your face in this mirror any longer. The betrayal of a false disciple. But there's a second mirror, thankfully. A second mirror, the mark of a genuine disciple. The mark 
of a genuine disciple. Kids, have you ever done this where you stand a bunch of dominoes right next to each other on their end, maybe 10 dominoes standing up on their end next to each other, or maybe 20 dominoes, ever done that? Or you've seen those videos of, of hundreds of dominoes standing on their end right next to each other in some intricate pattern. Have you seen that? What happens when that first domino falls? They all begin to fall, right? That's what this series of events that will transpire, that's what this is like, a series of dominoes leading to the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, and the first domino has just fallen. Judas leaves. Now, now Jesus has his little band of believing disciples all to himself, and notice how things change. Verse 31, he says, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus refers to himself as this Son of Man, this figure of glory from Daniel chapter 7. But his glory is now seen in what he's about to endure, the shame of the cross. Keep that in mind. In John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, Jesus' Jesus's glory is most clearly seen, most clearly displayed in the cross of his shame and suffering as a sacrifice for our sin. Also notice, he calls his disciples in verse 33, little children. It's the first time he's called them that in John's gospel. Little children, or my dear children. That's how he thinks of you right now if you are his. My dear child. My dear, dear child. He tells them in verse 33, he's about to leave. They can't follow, not yet. So, so how should his dear children respond? How do we put this authentic relationship with Jesus on display? How? Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And notice a couple things. This is a command. He says, a new commandment I give. Love for each other is not optional, is it? This is an authoritative command from the supreme sovereign of the universe. A new commandment I give. Love one another. I think we can say safely, you don't need to wait <laughs> until you feel an overwhelming loving feeling for that person in your home group that you find difficult to love. I'm not denying the role of emotions. I'm not denying that we are whole persons. I'm just saying this love is a command. And often as you act lovingly, you will feel more lovingly as well. It's a command, and he said it's a new command, a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you. How is it new? 
The Old Testament says, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. How is this a new commandment, Jesus? Well, it's a new covenant he's inaugurating, bringing into existence a new standard for love, as verse 34 continues. He says, just as, notice that, just as, here's the standard, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. It's a just as love, just as he has loved you, little children, his dear children just as he has loved you. Now let's just try to get our hands around this. Let me give you or suggest to you three, three handles for this standard of love. First, I think you could say this is a, a visible love. Visible. By that I mean it's active. It's tangible. It gets seen. It goes public. Recall John's caption for this scene in this chapter in verse 1. His caption reads, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and then he showed that love visibly, you might say tangibly. How? By washing their feet. See, in context, in context, Jesus is looking to the foot washing that just happened in particular when his love had just a moment ago been visibly tangibly experienced by the disciples. And we see this all over John's gospel. Here's one example. John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching 5,000 men with women and children. It could be 20,000 people, and they're hungry. They're hungry. They can't go to In-N-Out Burger. They can't go to Chick-fil-A. So Jesus feeds them. He multiplies five loaves and two fish. He miraculously creates for these hungry people baked bread and cooked fish to feed them all. That's some tangible love. It's the love the Apostle John calls for. In his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, he writes, little children, same term Jesus used. The Apostle John says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Saying it's not enough to say, I love you, bro. Our words, I'm oh, sorry, our actions, our actions must match our words. And I want to say here, friends, you, you excel in this way. You excel in this way. Practical expressions of love. From the meals you make, the child care you provide, the married couples reaching out to single adults, single adults reaching out to married couples and families. You excel in visible, tangible love. Thank you. Let's just excel all the more, right? When a brother or sister is in legitimate need, legitimate need, just consider what do you do? maybe a financial need, maybe some other legitimate need, where love could go public, love could be seen visibly. Do you seek to meet that need as God would enable you? Or do you close your heart to it? Listen, if you ignore legitimate needs when you have the power to help, it's not love. This love is visible. Second, this standard for love this standard for love is sacrificial. 
It's sacrificial. In washing the disciples' feet in this scene, just prior to this, Jesus shows the humility, the self-humiliation he's about to demonstrate in his sacrifice for our sins. In cleansing their feet, Jesus symbolizes what he does for our souls by that sacrifice. He holds nothing back. He holds nothing back in his love, but gives himself. It's what he said he would do in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, for his people, for his children. You think about that. Shepherds, shepherds don't lay down their lives for sheep. Shepherds protect the sheep, absolutely. But if there is some kind of choice, if they're facing a wolf, and the choice is between the shepherd's life or the sheep's life. Look, if I'm the shepherd, the sheep's a goner. But not this shepherd. He sacrificed himself. Our love must reflect that sacrifice. A guy named Tertullian wrote about a century after the Apostle John. He said that people in his day marveled at the love of Christians for each other. As they faced persecution, the unbelieving said of the Christians, quote, see how they love each other. They are ready even to die for one another. Now, I'm not saying you have to literally die for each other, but it's a willingness to love, though it costs us something. Though it costs us time or energy or effort. This is where I find it hard to be honest with you. To love when it's inconvenient. When it costs me time. Help you move? Well, okay, if I'm not doing anything else that day. Can you relate? What do you do when love is inconvenient, when it costs you, when it requires sacrifice? This, this pandemic has been a laboratory for this, hasn't it? We've had the privilege of sacrificing personal preferences, face coverings before and after the service, meeting outside, bring your own chair, children's ministry on hiatus, the Lord's Supper in little her hermetically sealed cups. But we love each other saying, I'm willing to sacrifice my preferences out of love for you. I'm willing to empty myself of my right because Jesus emptied himself for my sins. You've been doing that for almost a year now. Thank you. A little while longer. We'll get through this together. Third, this standard for love is gracious. It's visible, it's sacrificial, and it's gracious. These disciples had not done anything to deserve or merit Jesus' love, and yet the caption, the caption of verse 1 reads, He loved his own. My little children, my dear children, that's grace. It's love freely given. It's what Jesus did in John 4. If you recall, breaking all social taboos, talking to a woman from the despised Samaritans, a woman with a checkered past, living far from God, he reaches out to her. Hey, give me a drink. I'll give you living water, which is eternal life. 
making her his own, his little child, by grace. We were born opposing God, at enmity with God, and he made you his own, his dear child. That's gracious love. It must be true of our love as well. It's when we refuse. It's when we refuse to view others through the lens of merit only. We refuse to take an accounting of whether they deserve our love. We refuse to think, what have they done for me? Or, I remember what they did to me. And instead, we view them through the lens of grace. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And we love them freely, graciously. I want to ask you, are you withholding love from someone here? Is there someone you're avoiding? Someone from whom you have withdrawn relationally? I want to challenge you. That's, that's not love. Remember his gracious love toward you. And be, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, patient and kind. Patient and kind. Love for each other is commanded on this just as standard, just as he has loved us. And that kind of love, friends, that kind of love for each other makes this world sit up and take notice. Look at verse 35. He says, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You are true. You are genuine followers of Christ if you have love for one another. So love is part of our witness to this world because this kind of love is not found in this world. In his essay, The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer wrote the following. Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks on the lapels of their coats, hung chains around their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign, he says. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. Love. Love, he says, and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave to Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Friends, love for each other shows the world what authentic Christianity looks like. No lip-syncing here. No milli-vanilli Christians. Love says to a watching world, we are real. We are genuine followers of Christ. So how do we stir this up? more and more? How do we stir up more Jesus-reflecting, Jesus-mirroring love for each other? Well, the starting point is to see his love for you in Christ. Just as I have loved you, he says. Jesus is 
the power plant <laughs> for love to which you must stay plugged in to empower this kind of love for other people, for his people. So stay focused, friends. Stay focused on where his glory and the glory of his love are most clearly revealed, the cross of Christ. Stay firmly planted on that hill called Calvary until you are regularly overwhelmed with this visible, tangible, undeniable, sacrificial, gracious love of Christ for you. He loves you, his little children. He died for you. And second, pray for this. Pray for this. Because this kind of love is supernatural. That's why it gets the world's attention. Because this kind of love is supernatural. It requires an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, applying the gospel, applying the good news of Jesus to our hearts. Pray, for instance, the inspired prayer of Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to how germane this is for us. Be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, you being rooted and grounded in love, that's what we want, being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know, to know, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I need to pray that. How about you? Or maybe more simply, I have found it very helpful over the years to pray Paul's words in Philippians 1 where he speaks of the affection of Christ for his people. I've prayed that many times, and God loves answering that prayer. God, give me the affection, the affection of Christ for your people, and he will. He will. So pray that for yourself. Pray that for me. Pray that for us as a church. Two mirrors, friends. Two mirrors before us. Where do you see your face today? It is possible to be a spiritual milli vanilli, just lip syncing the Christian life. But it's also possible. It's also possible to demonstrate that you're real, to show that you're genuine, to put authentic Christianity on display by our love for each other. So I exhort you, behold Christ's love. Behold his love and so be transformed. Let's pray. And those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can come prepared to do so.